44 sermons and over a year later, we finally reached the tragic end of 1 Samuel. You poor people, you have sat through 44 sermons after today from 1 Samuel. We've been through a lot in this book. We've seen the rise and fall of a king. We've seen the glorious rise of his great successor, at least his partial rise. We've seen battles lost. We've seen battles won. We've seen amazing heroic female characters like Hannah and Abigail. We followed the difficult yet faithful life of one of Scripture's most important prophets, the prophet Samuel. And in the end, God made his king. But before God can, or forgive me, before David can officially take his throne, unfortunately, God's rejected king Saul must first be taken off of it. And that is how 1 Samuel chapter 31 deals with. If you would please open your Bibles to the final chapter of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 31, for the last time. First Samuel 31, if you would please follow along with me through the whole chapter, beginning in verse 1, for these are the very words of God. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Goboah. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua and the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. And thus Saul died, and his three sons and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Goboa. So they cut off his head, and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Well, this is how our story ends. Saul and his sons, including the ever-faithful Jonathan, are slain. The Philistines win. The Philistines have taken the cities. They have mocked Yahweh. And they've even decapitated Saul and displayed his body for all the world to see. In other words, the glory of the Lord has left Israel for a second time. Now, there is some good in this sad story. The men of Jabesh at least removed the dishonor of, the, of Israel from the wall of the Philistines by removing 
Saul and his son's bodies from there. If you remember, uh, the men of Jabesh Gilead had a special bond to Saul because they got to see firsthand for the first time what Saul was like at his peak before his fall. If you remember earlier in 1 Samuel, the men of Jabesh Gilead were taken over by Nahash. And Nahash threatened to gouge out the eye of their men and to torture them and to make them slaves. And Nahash allowed them to send out messengers to see if anyone from Israel would come. And guess who came? Saul came, and he rescued them. So these men probably had a little bit of a love left over for fallen Saul. And so they went and took his body from the wall, and they burned it, and then they sent the bones for a proper burial because they understood that regardless of his downfall, as we learned throughout this book, Saul was the Lord's anointed. He was the Lord's anointed. He was the king, and he deserved a royal burial. He deserved a proper burial. So they sent his bones to a sacred spot in Israel. The tamarisk tree was a sacred tree to Israel, and it was a place that Saul spent a lot of time. And that ends the story. God brought his judgment, the very judgment that he prophesied he would bring upon Saul. He brought it upon Saul. He brought it upon Saul's family. And now Israel has an empty throne which sets up 2 Samuel for David to rise and take that throne that God has anointed him to. If you will, however, though, indulge me for our final sermon in 1 Samuel, I'm going to give you a textbook case of how not to preach a sermon today. This is going to be textbook bad sermon preaching. And here's what I mean. If you were to take a preaching class, typically you're taught with a text that when you find points in a sermon, you need to compile these points into one overarching point so that there's one thought, one seamless throw throughout, flow throughout the sermon. I found in this text there were a handful of things that I really wanted to touch on because I think they're so important for Christian life and Christian application, but just admittedly, I just could not tie them into our major theme, so I'm not going to. So we're going to learn about some really important Christian life applications and then we're going to jump to our main theme. So it's almost going to feel like two sermons in one. So it'll be good information, but admittedly it's not going to be my best attempt at sermon presentation. So I want us to just first begin with some of these important things that came up in the text that I think are really helpful for your life as a Christian. Uh, and I have three of them. Three issues that are important for us to think through in terms of Christian ethics and Christian living. And the first one is this issue of suicide. Would you turn with me to verse 4? 1 Samuel 31, verse 4. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Saul's death was a fitting end for him, theologically speaking, narratively speaking, if you will. Suicide is a fitting end for a man who spent this entire book destroying himself. The entire, Saul's entire legacy could be summed up in this phrase, he fell on his own sword. As one uh, pastor put it, he said this, Saul died just as he lived, destroying himself. Now we can, from a purely carnal human standpoint, we can empathize with why Saul took his own life. I think just to be fair, we can empathize with what caused him to do that. We can only imagine the horror that awaited him if the Philistines found him alive. 
We can only imagine the torture and the horror that awaited him. But nonetheless, no matter how much we want to empathize, we cannot use our emotions to get around the clear teaching of Scripture, which is that suicide is sin. This was a sinful way for Paul to go, forgive me, for Saul to go out. There's no getting around it. This is a wicked thing. Now, I understand when we talk about something like this, it's obviously emotional. And for some of you, it might even hit you very, very close to home. And so I don't want you to think that I'm coming at this from an, uh, without empathy. Uh, I, I do want to be empathetic, but I hope that you can empathize with me and remember what my job is as a pastor. And remember what my job is when I stand behind this desk and I stand in front of this word. It is not my job to allow very real and very painful emotions to cloud what Scripture teaches. And so I understand this is difficult, but it's important for us as Christians to know that suicide is wicked. It's exceedingly wicked. It's a very, very sinful thing to do. And that's why it was so fitting for Saul, not just because his whole life was basically suicide, but because it just is the final capstone of his downfall. Of course, he ended his life in suicide. The end of his life as he was going to witchcraft and necromancy, this is so fitting to cap off. He was falling into so much sin, even the very last moment of his life was sin. Because suicide is, in fact, sin. Why is it? Why would you say that? Like, isn't it my body? Isn't it my life? Don't I get to decide? Like, obviously, other people can't kill me and other people can't torture me, but I can decide what I do with my body and my life. And if someone were to say that, they've already started off on the wrong foot. They've already started off on a non-Christian foot. You see, your body is not your body. And your life is not your life. Your body and your life do not belong to you. And this is the first reason why suicide is sinful. Because it is the Lord who is the giver of life. It is God who is the Lord of life. You do not get to harm your body without the permission of God. You do not get to take your own life without the permission of God. He is the author and giver and sustainer of your life. He chooses when you go. You do not get to choose when to take your life. Another thing that's interesting to note is that many ancient pagan societies have all made suicide illegal in their cities and in their communities. So there seems to be something even in natural law, even in the light of God that he has given to us in the natural world, people don't even need scripture to oftentimes come to the conclusion that human beings are not designed or created to self-harm. We don't smash our fingers with hammers for fun. And you don't really need a philosophical reason not to do that. You just, you just instinctively know, I'm not here to harm myself. Self-harm is even seen as being wrong by the pagans. They made it illegal. As a matter of fact, what I really love about some of the ancient societies, Greece and Rome, is they did something much smarter with this word than we have. You see, in our English language, we've created a fancy new word for when someone takes their own life. We don't call it, we call it suicide. But you want to know what suicide directly translates into in these ancient languages? Self-murder. That's what Rome and that's what Greece, that's what they called it. It was illegal because murder is illegal. I can't murder you and guess what? I can't murder me either. That's what suicide is. It's murder. It's self-murder. You see, the definition of murder is not killing someone else. Murder is killing anybody who bears the image of God without divine permission. 
People who have the image of God cannot be killed unless God has given permission. So if you have God's image and God hasn't given you permission to take your own life, it's murder. Suicide is wrong because it's murder. That's the second reason. Uh, But additionally, all over the Bible, there are express commandments to love our own bodies. We are told, we are, we are called to love our neighbor, neighbors how? how? What's the standard by which you love your neighbor? As you love yourself. Would you kill your neighbor? No, then don't kill yourself. We are called to love ourselves. It, the Bible, in fact, doesn't even necessarily teach it. It presupposes it. It's just a presupposition of Scripture that it is virtuous not to harm yourself. Self-harm is simply not permitted in the Christian religion. We even have another example in the book of Ephesians where Paul commands husbands to love and cherish and nurture their wives as they what? Nourish their own bodies. It is the presupposition of Scripture that you do not harm yourself, that you take care of yourself, and that you love yourself. And then that becomes the standard for how you treat others. However you would want yourself to be treated, treat that to others. That's what Jesus says. We all naturally, instinctively know we take care of ourselves, and we nourish ourselves, and we love ourselves. And then Jesus works from that to, yeah, and you should treat other people that way too. But that whole system is broken when you think you have permission to not love yourself, to not nourish yourself, to not treat yourself well. One last thing I'll note, a fourth point. It should also interest you how suicide is not something that comes up often in Scripture, but when it does, it is always associated with evil. Here we have Saul committing suicide, and clearly, as we've seen, Saul is not being presented in 1 Samuel as like a beacon for our children, like a role model for our children to look up to. And what's the other, you know, when you think of a biblical suicide, is there anyone else that comes to mind? What's the most famous example of suicide in all of the Bible? Who knows? Judas. The betrayer. The backstabber. The one who sold Jesus for some cheap silver. How did he handle his guilt after he got Jesus murdered? He hung himself. And the land that he hung himself on became cursed. This was not a righteous act of penitence. This was self-murder. It was the wicked end of a wicked man. Suicide is always linked to wickedness. So we need to understand that suicide is very, very evil. And the last, I said that was the last thing. Forgive me, I wasn't reading my notes carefully. This is the last thing, the fifth reason. You need to remember the wake of destruction that suicide leaves in the path of the living is unlike anything other. It's hard to replicate that kind of pain. Everybody knows it's hard to lose a loved one. We all know that. No matter the circumstances, it's very, very hard to lose a loved one. But there is nothing quite like losing a family member to suicide. It brings a unique pain and a unique shame upon the family and the church and the friends and the loved ones. There are few things, if anything, quite as selfish as suicide. The way you absolutely destroy and wreck the living with that decision. You ruin your family. You ruin your friends. You ruin a whole, whole communities have been devastated by suicide. It is, it is a destruction that lives longer than you do in this earth. It is, an inc- it is an incredible act of hatred to the living to kill yourself. 
So it is important for us, even though suicide is a very sad thing, and we do, of course, as Christians, we're going to always want to have a heart of empathy towards any person whose suffering is so bad that they would go to that extreme. That should break our hearts. I'm not saying we should be cruel, cold legalists. We should empathize. But we cannot allow our emotions to cloud our judgment. Suicide is very, very wicked. But let me use that as a reminder to two different crowds in our church. First and foremost, I, I specifically want our children to hear this. I want, our, I want our kids to listen very closely to this. If you ever feel like you want to hurt yourself, feelings of hitting yourself or cutting yourself, if you ever have feelings where you want to hurt yourself, you need to tell your parents about those feelings. You've got to bring those feelings to your parents. They can help you. Okay, it's, it's, it's not good. It will not help you to harm yourself. So if you have feelings of harming yourself, you need to talk to your parents about it and they will help you. But this also goes for adults. If there's anyone in this room who's ever had feelings of hurting themselves, suicidal thoughts, you need to bring that to my attention and we can find help. We want to be open and empathetic to people who are suffering, who are suffering so bad that they want to hurt themselves. We, again, we don't want to be cruel to those people. We want to help you and love you. But perhaps it will be an extra motivation not to take that step to know that the Bible overwhelmingly presents this as an incredibly evil, painful, wicked thing. So don't do it. Our next sort of unrelated point to Christian living is this idea of burial. What should you do with your dead? What do we do with the dead? Look with me at verse 12 of chapter 31. All the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Let's read verse 13. And then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. After the men risked their lives and took the body of Saul and his sons off of the wall, they burned them down to the bones. Now, why would they do this? In my mind, there's two possible reasons for why they did this, and both of them have biblical support. One possible reason, I don't prefer this interpretation, but it's very possible, is we have to remember that they didn't have uh, latex gloves and masks back then. And the Old Testament, it was, it was a very serious ceremonial crime to touch dead bodies. And so it, this may have just been purely for health reasons. You've got a decapitated dead body that's been hanging exposed to the elements on a wall in the sun in the Middle East. This isn't exactly the most safe, clean thing to be carrying around Jabesh Gilead and carrying it up to Gilboa or wherever they want to take it. So it's possible that they just had to burn this body for disease sake. Uh, that's a very real interpretation. As a matter of fact, in Amos chapter 6, we actually have an example of that. We have an example of a body being burned because of the health requirements going involved in it. I think, and that's very possible, I think the more likely interpretation of why they burned the bodies and then buried the bones was I think that their overall mission is they were trying to save Saul and his sons from humiliation. And keep in mind, this was a very dangerous mission. There was no guarantee that this mission was going to go well. That's why, who is it that was sent to get Saul? Was it just any old guy? No, it was the valiant men of Jabesh. It was the brave, heroic men because this was a dangerous mission if they're caught. If they're caught, they're going on the wall with them. <laughs> And probably more humiliation and shame is happening to the bodies. So I think probably what was happening is once they got hold of the bodies and they were safe, but they still weren't out of the clear, the game plan was let's just burn these bodies so no more dishonor. In case we get caught, they don't have a body to hang on a wall. I think they were saving Saul from further humiliation if the, the mission still went 
wrong. So we don't know exactly why, but for some reason they burn the bodies down to the bones and then they bury the bones. Do we read this? Is, is this how we should treat our dead? Should we do full cremation? Should we cremate down to the bones and then bury bones? Should we bury people? I think that this raises a good question about what we do with the dead. Now, let me be very clear from the get-go. I am going to present to you, and this isn't something I often do from the pulpit, but we're making an exception today. I'm going to present to you what's called a personal opinion. This is a personal opinion. Uh, now, it's backed by my reading of Scripture, but I, I want to be very, very clear. If what I say today offends you, it doesn't need to offend you. Because I do not believe there is a New Testament law for what you must do with the dead. I, I do believe that you have freedom in the New Covenant to take advantage of the different systems of burial that we have. I believe you have that freedom, and I do not believe there is a biblical command. So if you disagree with me today and do a different option, I am not claiming you're in sin. Or if you've done a different option with your family members in the past, I'm not claiming you've sinned, okay? So I just want to be very clear. We, you can relax through this. But I just want to give you a personal opinion that I have developed through my reading of Scripture. And I really believe that Christians should prefer burials and not cremation. I would just encourage you as a brother, as a friend, if you have made up your mind for your own self that when I die I want to be cremated, I would just lovingly and gently call you to reconsider that. Not as a law, not as a commandment, just as a, as a personal recommendation. There's a few reasons why I've come to this conclusion. Um, first and foremost, in my reading and studying, though I haven't dove too deep into it, uh, it's been common knowledge in all of the literature that I've read that typically cremation is what ancient pagans practiced. So cremation has almost always been associated with pagan practices and pagan rituals. And then contrary to that, in the Old Testament, burial from Old and New Testament has always been the practice of God's people. It's always been the practice. The only times we've seen cremation is the examples that we just got done. These kind of emergency examples. If there's a health crisis or some kind of honor crisis. But even notice, they don't even prefer pure cremation. Like They, they still believe Saul was buried. They buried his bones under, under the Tamish tree. And in 2 Samuel, David takes burial so seriously, David digs them up and puts them in a proper royal tomb. David reburies them in a tomb. So they would even still say that this wasn't true cremation, this was burial. Burial was very, very important to God's people. It always has been. And so I would commend to you that I think the general tone of Scripture is that cremation is for the pagans and burial is for God's people. Uh, another reason why I think burial should be preferred by you is because burial not only is the practice of God's people, but it becomes important symbolism for the gospel. The gospel uses burial language to communicate itself. So, for example, uh, we have in the in New Testament, we were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, Romans 6.4. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also sealed with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So you see, our baptism is a symbol of our burial and resurrection. And even our faith by itself, our faith in Christ, is a kind of symbolic burial and resurrection. Christ himself, when he, was die, when he died, the Jews were not desperate to come the day after the Sabbath to burn his body. They wanted to anoint his body and properly bury it, and he rose from a buried grave. He did not rise from an urn, right? He was 
buried. Now, let me be clear. Um, as a pastor, I haven't been involved in too many funerals yet, but I have been involved in one. And I can tell you, I do understand and I believe it is a travesty how expensive it is to bury our dead. Now, I'm not an expert. I'm, I'm word and sacrament. I don't work in that business. I'm not saying there are easy solutions. I'm not, maybe there are solutions I don't even know about. But my limited experience is it seems incredibly expensive to bury your dead. Even the, it's like a wedding. Even the cheap options really aren't cheap. And so I know that there are lots of Christians who feel compelled to cremation because they just don't want to leave that kind of a burden upon their families. They don't want to ask their families to spend that kind of money. And I, I can honestly empathize with that. So that's why I want to be clear here. I'm, I'm trying not to lay down a law and crack the whip. Um, but I, I do believe that even regardless of the cost, if it's at all in your means, you really should prefer to bury your dead and not to burn your dead. I think we honor the people of God by burying them and not burning them. And let me also be clear of one thing, because this has come up in church history, so it's just important to get this out of the way. I am not at all saying that you shouldn't cremate bodies because Jesus can't resurrect cremated bodies. Okay, that's actually been a theory that people have proposed. But let me just go ahead and remind you that the God who spoke black holes and galaxies and nebulas into existence out of nothing with a word probably isn't going to be too troubled by trying to resurrect a cremated body. And I would also remind you that many bodies that have been buried a long time ago, like take Moses' body, for example. Moses' body is basically as good as cremated at this point. There's not, there's not much of Moses' body left to, to, to resurrect at this point. So I'm not saying God can't resurrect your cremated loved ones. I'm not, say, I'm not saying that. But I think that the general, not commandment, but the general flow of Scripture is that we honor, we honor God's people by burying them and not by burning them. So I would recommend you at least think through it more carefully before you make your decision. And then the last thing I want us to look at today is this issue of fasting. Verse 13. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Fasting throughout Scripture has many purposes, but perhaps the most important purpose it has is what we see right here. Usually fasting is used in Scripture as a form of mourning or grieving. You fast when you are grieving. And I've always kind of had this assumption that fasting was more of an Old Testament thing than a New Testament thing. And it is true, fasting comes up a lot more in the Old Testament. It comes up all the time in the Old Testament, and it's not as much in the New Testament. And even when it does come up in the New Testament, it's usually in the gospel accounts, which are still kind of in that Old Testament realm, right? Because Jesus doesn't die and resurrect until the end of those gospels and then acts. So even the gospels are kind of Old Testament living. And so I've never really taken fasting seriously. I've had friends who have always pushed me to, you should be fasting, you should fast, you should fast. And I've always resisted that. I've always rejected that. But something happened to me this week as I was studying this text and I saw that. And I, the Lord just put this thing of fasting in my head and I started thinking about it and praying about it and doing some study. And I was really convicted. You know, fasting does show up in the New Testament beyond Acts. It's in there. The apostles still fasted well after Pentecost. Christians still fasted. And I've realized, you know, I can honestly say I've never done a spiritual fast. I've done two fasts in my whole life, and they were for just, like I did one just as a friend, with a friend just to see if we could. And I did one for health reasons one time. I've never done a spiritual fast, and I was very convicted by that. I think that overwhelming, if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you find a high view of fasting among God's people. 
God's people fast in every age, in every testament. I think fasting has incredible benefits for us spiritually, mentally, emotionally. And so this text really convicted me about why don't I ever fast? Why have I never find an appropriate time to fast? I used to always come up with excuses like, I can't. Like, I, I, I'm, listen, I've got things i got to do today. I can't be, I can't like, not have my mental focus. I don't want to have a headache all day. I don't want to be weak today. I've just got too many important things. Maybe I could fast on a Saturday, but I'm just too busy. I have too many things to do. But let me just ask you, do you think the men of Jabesh Gilead had things to do? Yes. Are you busier than everyone in Scripture? Your life is just way busier than theirs. You've got, you've got really important things to take care of. David, not so much. David's fast, it was easy for King David to fast. Not easy for me to fast. Everyone's busy. Everyone has the same excuses that I do. For goodness sake, remember 1 Samuel? Now this was a bad fast, so maybe it's a bad example. Saul made his men win a war while fasting. You want to go to battle without eating? That's what they did. What, I just realized my excuses aren't very good. And so here's what I'm doing. Again, this is not laying down the law thing because even when you read about fasting in the New Testament, it's very much... You shouldn't let people see. You shouldn't brag about it. You shouldn't boast about it. So I'm not here to organize some community fast or get you to start fasting and bragging about it and telling people. But all I'm saying is for me, I'm going to dedicate this year to actually finding time to do some fasting. The Spirit has convicted me. I want to make this year a year where I start to experience the benefit of fasting. I'm going to attempt it this year. I don't know when. I don't know how often. I don't have that figured out. But I've been convicted. I'm going to act upon it. I am going to fast throughout this year. And I'm just throwing it out there to see if the Spirit will grab it and maybe convict you all about fasting as well. I think fasting can be an important part of our sanctification. It can be helpful to our walk with Christ. And it's been important to God's people throughout the ages. And just as a side note, I've heard in the health world, people debate things all the time, but I've heard that there's some really great physical benefits to fasting for your body as well. But the, so those were the three things I wanted to say. Like I said, they don't really connect to anything. It's just kind of practical Christian living. Uh, suicide is evil, and we should help suffering people to avoid it. Uh, you can bury however you want, but I would prefer, I would recommend you bury and not cremate. And I think fasting might be something you should consider this year. Think about, pray about whether God would want you to start doing some spiritual fasts. But let's just, with the little bit of time we have left, let's really summarize, not just this text, but I think in a certain sense we can almost summarize this whole book as we prepare to move on and move forward. What is it, after we look back, and you remember, what did we just read? We read this very, very sad text of Saul and his sons dying and Israel losing the battle to the Philistines and David still off in exile. And what is it that we can learn after indulging in those three points from this very sad ending to the text? And here's what I think we can learn from this text. Very, very important for us is that Christians win wars, but sometimes they lose battles. I know it's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. Christians always win the war. Christians win wars, but sometimes they lose battles. I titled our entire sermon series, God Made a King, and God did that. You would have to read through 2 Samuel to see the full culmination of that. But this book ends with God having his anointed king ready to take an empty throne. God truly made his king. But as we read through this book, we know that this process did not come without a lot of suffering and a lot of loss. One commentator said, 1 Samuel is simply a sad book. 
It's a sad book of one disappointment after another. Here is the kingdom of God enduring one failure after another. And perhaps the last chapter, the one we just read, is the saddest, biggest failure of every chapter we've read up to this point. Israel's blood has been spilled all over Mount Gilboa. Husbands, fathers, sons are dead. David is exiled. The people are scattered and the king has been slain. But while the Hebrews just experienced what, is, what should be the worst day of their lives, this, this is probably the worst day that has fallen upon Israel in a long, long time. In the southwest near Ziglag, a faint light shimmers. You see, what they don't realize is David's coming. Reinforcements are coming. David's coming back to the city. David's looming in the background. It's not explicit in this text, but we know it because we read it last week. We know David's not dead. We know he's ready to take his throne. David's looming in the background is our subtle reminder that even though Israel has suffered a terrible loss, God's not done with Israel. God is not done with Israel. And so these texts, through their typology, these help us set appropriate expectations for us in what it looks like to minister the gospel in a victorious kingdom prior to its final consummation. Texts like this equip us for loss and suffering. We know we're going to win. We know the battle's won, but we're going to lose along the way. We're going to suffer along the way. And we need texts like this to remind us of that. We need songs like It Is Well to help us sing and be reminded that I am content no matter what happens because guess what? Sometimes Satan will buffet and trials will come. We're winning the war. The war's won, but we lose battles. God's people lose battles. Sometimes the Philistines take the ark and bring it to the temple of Dagon. Sometimes the Philistines take our city and drive us into the wilderness. Sometimes we suffer casualties. Our Davids are exiled. Our Jonathans are killed. Our Sauls fall away. But we need to remember that while the victory of the war is inevitable, this is not going to be easy. This is not going to be easy. We need to see the victory of the kingdom of God is a victory that is won over the course of many years and many losses. We will suffer loss. Things will not always go our way. Even though in the end, yes, the victory will always still be ours because Jesus is leading this war and he's the one taking us to glory. And so this is why, by the way, we have hope in all of our circumstances. Even during our seasons of loss and despair and sorrow, we are never without hope. No matter what you are going through, you always have the ability to lift your eyes toward heaven. God is in control even of our losses. God is, God is in control of the Philistines right now. He's the one who prophesied this. You think God is up in, in, in heaven panicking? Like, oh, oh no, Saul's dead. What am I going to do? And David's all the way in sick, like, ah. You think God's panicking? God's doing this. God's doing this. And so that God is in control even of our losses and our judgment, that's what gives us hope. Because what that means is we never, ever, ever have to fear total annihilation. We never have to fear total destruction. 
We never have to fear the loss of war. We lose battles for judgment, for discipline, for sanctification. God has many reasons why we might lose battles, but we don't lose wars. The Lord will never abandon his people and his kingdom will never be totally defeated. So whether in this life or in death, victory or defeat, joy or sorrow, prosperity or poverty, we have hope that though Christians lose battles, they don't lose wars. It's interesting, I was just telling someone before church today, I didn't pick 1 Samuel because I thought it was going to be relevant for our day. Uh, I picked 1 Samuel because I wanted to practice preaching the Old Testament. I don't have much practice in it. And trusted people that I listened to who have a lot of years experience preaching said, if you need to practice in the Old Testament, you've got to start with 1 Samuel. I picked 1 Samuel for, your, for purely pragmatic reasons. Yet it astonished me how much God used 1 Samuel and his providence to make this message relevant to almost everything we're going through in our world today. 1 Samuel and the, 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 the stories we read of God's providence over his kingdom, of establishing a kingdom and protecting a kingdom and bringing a kingdom through ups and downs is a perfect reminder for us, not only for the world we're living in, but quite frankly for the one it feels like we're about to walk into. God is providentially sovereign over his kingdom. And this does not mean that God is going to protect us from all calamity and all pain. Quite the contrary, 1 Samuel showed us a roller coaster for the kingdom of God. Many highs and many lows, many mountaintops, many valleys. But in every single chapter we read, we never lost sight of how God was never going to ultimately forsake his kingdom. That was the message we needed through the second half of COVID. That was the message we need during the rise of authoritarianism. And it's definitely the message we need considering whatever else is now going on in this world that I don't even understand. We need to hear that in our times of growing hostility, when many battles are coming our way that we might not win, God will win the war. There may be tough days ahead. There might be some Philistine victories in our future. But we have reason to hope through it all. We have reason to remember that even though, again, we lose battles, we've already won the war. So 1 Samuel, in summary, is ultimately about the advancement of a victorious kingdom. And it is a type of the kingdom that is now being built by God which cannot be shaken. And it's that kingdom that we are in. It's that kingdom that we are awaiting its full consummation. And it will be a glorious consummation over the earth. It will be a kingdom which stands alone as the one eternal, unconquerable kingdom. Many kings of this earth have come and gone. Many kings of this earth will continue to come and go. David himself was a great king, but David came and David went. But David was a type, an imperfect type, of our great and glorious king. He is a type of the greatest king that God has ever made, that God has ever given to us. You see, King Jesus, our king, he came and he went, but then he came back again. He came back again to never go away. He rose from the dead and King Jesus now reigns over the heavens and over the earth and over the church and he sits there until he finishes his work. And he will be seated there until he finishes his work and he returns in glory to raise us and to judge the living and the dead. Our king is not in exile in Ziklag. 
Our king is not dead in a tomb somewhere. Our king is alive, and he is reigning, and he is here to stay. Long live King Jesus.